What a glorious morning. Maybe a little too much so. This is the last Sunday that we're talking about our, our ongoing series on forgiveness. It's been kind of a a short, a short series, kind of wedged in between uh, the beginning of the year and Lent that's coming up in a few weeks. And I'm excited about preaching our way through Lent and the characters that we find on the way to the cross. So I'm excited about where we're going, but I'm also sorry to be leaving uh, this topic of forgiveness behind. A lot of you have said the same thing to me uh, and to Woods. You said how much you've uh, appreciated this, this series. And I, I think that owes less to the quality of the sermons than to the, the quality and the power of forgiveness itself. It's something we all need. It's something we all long for more in our lives. And there is so much that uh, I want to say that I could say that it feels a little daunting to try and wrap things up. And I know I'm not going to exhaust the topic today, uh, but we are going to try and uh, point our so ourselves towards a future living in forgiveness and living with that power that we've been talking about for these last few weeks. And we're going to do so by going to one of my favorite quirky little stories in the Old Testament. This is uh, one of the stories of our best known heroes from the Old Testament, David, the uh, the great king of Israel. This comes from before he was king. It comes when he's on the run from the current king of Israel. David has been anointed. He knows that he is called by God to be king. Uh, but right now, Saul is the king on the throne in Israel. And uh, Saul suspects that David is going to be the next king. And you can imagine this doesn't uh, lead to a whole lot of warm feelings between Saul and David. And David is on the run and we find him in the wilderness in one of the quirky, weird, but also powerfully wonderful moments that we find in all of the story of his reign. And I want to share it with you. It's a little bit long. I'll try and make up for it on the back end. Uh, but there's just no part of the story that I felt like leaving out this morning. So I hope you'll bear with me. After Saul was return, returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel, set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. We need more places named things like the crags of the wild goats in our lives. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked at him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen? When men say, David is bent on harming you, this day you have, been, you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand and to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. 
May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing, a dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice? David, my son, and he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, Saul said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me now about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And when a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be the king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of God. It's for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I want you to picture yourself in David's shoes for a little bit and imagine what it must have been like for for him. He spent the last several months, even years, running from this madman, this tyrant, this guy named Saul, who is obsessed with killing you if you are in David's shoes. Furthermore, imagine that you have all the confidence in the world that you have been ordained by God. You have not just had some folks say, it'd be nice if you are a king, but God's own prophet Samuel came and he laid hands on you, anointed you with oil. He said, you are God's choice for the king of Israel. You have been chosen to replace this maniac who is in charge of your holy nation. And not only that, but at this point, you are responsible for 600 men who are in your army, who have chosen to put their own lives on the line, who have chosen to follow you, go wherever you say that you will go. And imagine now that this despot, this tyrant, this madman who's coming after you, that he's gotten 3,000 of his best men to come against you and against the 600 men who took the chance, who put themselves out there, who have risked their lives for you. That is a lot of weight on your shoulders. That's a lot to be walking around with. And then imagine that God puts your enemy in front of you in the most vulnerable position any of us could imagine. I mean, David actually finds his enemy with his pants down, his tunic hiked up, however you want to imagine that. <laughs> In this moment, you don't really have a whole lot of time to decide what to do. Let's give yourself, let's be generous. Let's say you got a minute. You have a minute to decide what are you going to do with your enemy right there in front of you? And how are you going to make your decision? Let's try out the usual answers that we make difficult decisions. Let's say, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this situation? There is not much precedent in all of scripture for what to do when you find your enemy in a cave relieving himself. There's just not much in there. On the one hand, you got the commandment. Number six, thou shalt not kill. But clearly there's some wiggle room right there. Yeah, some room for interpretation. Because David has killed thousands of Philistines and Saul has killed thousands of Philistines. And 
isn't Saul at this point at least as big a danger to God's people as the Philistines were? Can't David make the, the case that if I just kill this one guy, hundreds, maybe thousands of other people won't have to die? And it's not exactly scripture, but the word of God had come to David through Samuel and said, you're supposed to be king, so couldn't that have been his justification? Like, I know I'm supposed to be king. This is clearly what God meant all along. This is how God meant for it to happen. There's only two ways you get to become king. Either you're born to it or you kill the guy who was. That's kind of how it works. So surely this is the moment that Samuel was ordaining, that Samuel was predicting when he laid his hands on David. The Bible's a little vague about right and wrong in this situation, but there's nothing that should have discouraged David from taking to advantage and doing what he needed to end this war and this conflict. And also, by the way, not only does he have it internally, not only could he find a reason in scripture to justify this, but he's got his buddies behind him. He's got 600 people in his ear and they are all saying, we know what you're supposed to do. It is obvious what you are supposed to do. Why are you waiting? It could not be any clearer. God has given Saul into your hands so completely. He is telling you, you have to kill this guy. It is negligence if you don't. But instead, David does the most powerful thing that he can. He takes a corner of Saul's tunic, but he will not take his life. And then when David holds up that scrap of cloth, when he holds up that tunic, everyone realizes afterwards that the emperor has no clothes. He exposes Saul for who he is. And in that moment at the end, you see it, Saul is shaken. He knows that all the power is with David now. And the most powerful choice that David made was what he chose not to do. We've been saying for a couple weeks that forgiveness is power. That it is not simply weakness. That it is not simply choosing to let things go. It is not being a doormat. It is not passivity. Forgiveness is power. And we believe, because of what Christ has done for us, that forgiving is the most powerful thing that can happen in this world. It is the greatest power in the world. And we see this power on display when David walks out, holding up that tunic, and even Saul is shaken to his core. He chooses not to kill him. He doesn't take his revenge, and he tells Saul, may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Of course, there's something else that David doesn't do. He doesn't make everything go back to normal. I mean, at the end of the story, I don't know if you heard it, but David goes to his stronghold. He goes to the place where he is safe, and Saul goes off, but they have not patched things up. They don't sign a peace treaty. Everything isn't better now. Saul leaves, David goes to a secure place because he knows he needs security in case there's another attack by Saul. David does the most powerful thing that he can do, but there's only so much that David can do. He can't make it all go back to normal at this point. And when we talk about the power of forgiveness and how it is a power and how we often neglect that power, we sometimes begin to believe that not only is it the greatest power in the world, but maybe it does everything. Maybe we get a little frustrated because we don't see the exercise of this power accomplishing everything that we thought that it should. We talked last week 
about how it is that we receive power when we know that we are forgiven and the freedom that that gives us and the assurance that that gives us. And we long to see that assurance and that freedom unleashed in the world when we forgive, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Forgiveness is the greatest power that God has given us, but there is an even greater power, a power so great that only God can wield it. And it's this particular power that goes beyond forgiveness and that rests entirely God's hands that we're gonna talk about today. It is the greatest power, not only in the world, but in the cosmos, in the heavens and the earth. We have to talk about today, not only the things that forgiveness can do, but the things that it can't. We have to talk about the power of reconciliation that belongs to God. We're only telling half the story. If we talk about forgiveness without talking about reconciliation, So today, this morning, we're gonna talk about the power that we have when we forgive, just like last week we talked about the power that comes when we are forgiven. And we're gonna talk about the limits of that power and how far it can't get us. And we're gonna talk about the power that resides in God's hands, which is the power of reconciliation. And we're gonna close by talking about what it means to be a witness to a power that is even greater than ourselves. I wanna start us off by talking about the power that comes when we forgive. And I I wanna note that it's a little wild and it wasn't by intent that we're now three weeks into a series on forgiveness and we haven't actually defined what forgiveness is. We said a lot of things that it's not. We said it's not a tactic. It's not a trick to get your way in a relationship or in things. We said that it's not usually a single moment and it's not about denial. It's not about ignoring what has happened. But we haven't actually said what forgiveness is. In today's story, we begin to see a glimpse or at least one definition of forgiveness that's been really helpful for me. We see that forgiveness is trusting in God's justice more than our own. Hear this again. Forgiveness is trusting in God's justice more than our own. That may not be the definition you've been carrying around in your mind, but it's the one that we see at work in this passage. It's the appeal that David makes to Saul when he's explaining to him what he has just done. He says it several times. Verse 12, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Verse 15, he says it again. May the Lord therefore be the judge and give sentence between me and you. May God see to it. May God plead my cause. May God vindicate me against you. See, David is not saying I was wrong all along. David is not saying, you know what, Saul? No big deal, all those murders that you threatened against me. But David is saying, I'm gonna let God be the judge of this. He's not denying Saul's cruelty and his sin, but he is saying that these are things that God is meant to deal with. It's remarkable to think that after everything that David suffered from Saul and all that he had to fear, he's still able to say at the end of the day, I'm gonna leave all this in God's hands and I won't take my revenge. And as remarkable as this moment is, there's a moment in the last couple years, an, an incident of Christian forgiveness that seems to me at least as remarkable and at least as powerful. I remember being just dropped utterly still in my study as I was reading a couple years ago, the testimony that came out of a courtroom in Ingham County, Michigan, where Larry Nasser had been convicted of the monstrous crimes that I'm sure many of you have seen in the news against the USA Gymnastics Organization. The judge who was in that case, at the end of the case, called for over 200 women to come and make impact statements 
about what they had suffered at his hands and what it had meant to them, what it had done to them. And the judge gave the last word to the first woman to publicly accuse Nasser, a woman named Rachel Denhollander, who had been a promising young gymnast before Nasser got involved in her life and who spent two decades trying to get people to believe her, to hear her story. And when Rachel Denhollander came up and gave her witness testimony, she named the full horror of his actions. She called for him to serve the maximum sentence that was allowable as a sign to young girls that they matter and that what he had done was something that we exist to protect them from. But in the middle of her wrenching testimony, Rachel Denhollander's took an unexpected turn when she faced Larry Nasser and she said, I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend my forgiveness to you as well. When asked later what it meant for her to forgive Nasser, Den Hollander said, I trust in God's justice and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It doesn't mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse what he has done. It does not mean that I pursue justice on earth any less zealously. It means that I release my personal vengeance against him and I trust in God's justice. David showed Saul for who he was. David said, let God reveal what is right. But David did not take vengeance for himself. And Rachel Denhollander stood up for hundreds of little girls, exposed what needed to be seen, but she didn't, let the truth, she didn't let the truth of what had happened stay hidden. She didn't ignore it. She didn't hide it or excuse it. But she also released the bitterness and the anger that she had every right to carry. And most of us are not like David. We don't walk around in the world carrying a sword, but a lot of us do walk around carrying that desire for vengeance. We may not express it through violent means, but we do carry around this anger and this grievance and this bitterness when we believe that we are the only ones who see what's really going on. When we don't trust that there is a right and a holy judge whom we can trust. When we don't think anybody else sees it, then we just hold on to that unforgiveness. And we hold it so tightly that it begins to make everything that we want to inflict on the person come back and begin to hurt us. One teacher of forgiveness has said, resentment and the desire for revenge is like carrying around a red hot rock in the hope of someday throwing it back at the person who hurt you. It tires us and it burns us. Forgiveness is about trusting God to do the convicting and the changing of hearts. It's about trusting God to do justice and to make things right so that we can let go of that and release our own personal claims. Forgiveness is not about forget, forgetting or denying or excusing what's happened to us. When we forgive, it's about learning to speak the truth without fear. We are not afraid of what those we speak to may do to us and we're not afraid of the emotions it may stir up within us. When we learn to speak the truth without fear, we know the freedom that comes not just from being from forgiven, but from forgiving. When we have forgiven, we are able to name the truth without being afraid of what it will still do to us. We're able to revisit those painful memories without the fear that they are gonna overwhelm us this time. 
When we forgive, we have a power to name the truth without fear. The truth of our own lives, the truth of our own experience, the truth of our own failings. We're able to trust ourselves when we forgive others. We are able to know a new power in our own lives because we forgive others. And if forgiveness is about trusting God and God's justice and God's understanding of what is right, then reconciliation is about learning to trust others. Reconciliation is rebuilding the trust that gets broken when injustice is done, when wrongs are leveled against us or others. Reconciliation is learning to trust again and to build that trust, and that's what takes it out of our hands. It's because we can always trust God. God is always worthy of our trust. So the power of forgiveness is one that we carry around with us everywhere and always. In any given situation, we can know that God is just and we can release our desire for vengeance to him. But reconciliation, that's a two-way street. Learning to trust each other, learning to build those bonds with each other, that's something we can't do on our own, but it always depends on someone else as much as it depends on us. The theologian Christina Edmondson said this about her work in racial reconciliation. She said, it's been disciplined by two fundamental truths that took her a long time to learn and a longer time to believe. The first truth is that people can change. And the second truth is I can't change people. Reconciliation means having the patience to believe that people can change and the humility to know that I can't be the one to change people. Building trust is not something we can control on our own because transformation is always a miracle. A changed heart always comes by God's power, not mine. And sometimes it takes a really long time to get that transformation. Did you notice that Saul didn't say to David, David, you are righteous and I am sorry. There's no apology in there. He says, I get it, you're great, David, you're awesome, I'm ashamed, but he doesn't actually bring himself to say that I am sorry. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I threw that spear at you when you were at my house. He doesn't say, I'm sorry I've sent my army to hunt you, even though you were my faithful soldier. Paul doesn't say, I'm going to stop. (laughs) Did you catch that? There's a lot of trust that's gotta be built between David and Saul. And in this particular case, it's not gonna get built in their lifetimes. Even after Saul says, You should be king, David, and you will be king. Saul still wants to be king. And he's worried about the implications for his family if he is no longer the king. And he wants it all to happen on his terms. He's not willing to talk and listen with David. Saul forgives David, but he doesn't reconcile with him, not because David is unwilling, but because Saul can't bring himself to become trustworthy. And David knows he can't trust Saul, they're gonna have to build this trust and it's gonna take a while. And even Saul knows this, which is why the one thing that he asks David is that David will not wipe out or give up on Saul's family because they know that this reconciliation between their houses, it's gonna take generations. By the way, that's why my favorite movie about reconciliation is Field of Dreams. And that's why Field of Dreams has to be about baseball. Because every other sport that we celebrate or we play is governed by a clock. There's a time when time runs out. But in baseball, you never stop in a tie and you never have the clock run out. You just keep playing till you get it right. 
And that's the promise of that old movie, is that Ray Kinsella and his dad have now been given all the time that they need to be reconciled. Baseball, I don't really watch it that often because it takes forever. (laughs) And so does reconciliation, which is why the power of it belongs to the God who holds eternity. Aren't we lucky to know a God who has forever to give us? We worship the God who holds eternity and we can live in the confidence that we still have plenty of time to be reconciled. In a world that's always given us a clock that says that time is running out, we are a people who believe in eternity and who believe that God has given us enough time to be reconciled with one another and we don't have to have it all figured out by tomorrow. We have all the time that we need to learn to trust, to become trustworthy ourselves and to build up that trust brick by brick by brick. It's God's time and it's not ours. And reconciliation comes by God's power. Sometimes we get confused about that. In the great courtroom of life, if we had our druthers, we would be the judge or the jury. Those are the seats that we would like to occupy. And if we can't do that, then we'd like to be the prosecution. And if we can't do that, we would make a mighty and a loud defense. But that's not who we are. We're the witnesses. And our only power is to believe that we have enough time to tell the truth and to let it win out. Our only duty in reconciliation is not to make it happen as if we could. Our duty is to tell the truth, the whole truth about what we've done and left undone, the whole truth about what isn't settled, about what we don't understand, about the hurt that's been done to us because we believe that the truth can change people and we can't. We have to give the truth time to work. There's sometimes when we're willing to, to minimize the truth to tell less than the truth, to tell half the truth because we think it's gonna get us to the change we want faster. Oh, let's not deal with that. That just complicates things. That just makes it messy. But what if we have time for all the truth and to tell it all and to hear it all? What if we have time to believe that evil is real but it doesn't have the last word in our lives? and to be witnesses to the power that forgives us and teaches us to forgive and that gives us all the time we need to do God's work. I mean, David knew how this was gonna end. He knew he was meant to be king. But he knew the timing belonged to God. And we do great violence to each other when we try to take the timing out of God's hands. David forgave And David did not become Saul's best friend. And David did not give up on Saul or even Saul's family. As the story unfolds, we'll see David taking Saul's grandson into his own household. His grandson, Mephibosheth, one of the great names in all the Bible, who was crippled and couldn't care for himself and became a beloved member of David's own family table. David knew the power that God had given him, and he was a witness to an even greater power a power of reconciliation that belongs to a God who holds eternity. And y'all, the world needs a church that actually believes in that kind of power. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me?
Father, we confess that we have tried to take the timing out of your hands. We are so in love with power that even good powers like yours, we try to bend to our will and we forget that there are certain things that belong only to you, the God of eternity. Forgive us when we haven't hold, told the whole truth because we thought it was too complicated or we didn't have time. Forgive us when we have not listened to the whole truth because we were afraid it was too complicated or we didn't have time. Make us your truth tellers and let us live in the simple and unshakable truth that we are forgiven to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.